0: Well, before we get going uh, tonight, I want to just say that I'm indebted to several men who have written on this particular topic, The Emotions of Christ. And if you're interested in some further reading, I would recommend two particular books to you, and I'll put them here on the screen. Uh, The first is B.B. Warfield's The Emotional Life of Our Lord. It's a classic um, it's a little more academic and technical, but it's a good. It's 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 a really important work that was written. BB Warfield lived in the 1800s, late 1800s, and then you have Robert Law. He wrote the Emotions of Jesus, and this is a slightly more devotional work on, of course, this topic. So these are the two that I would recommend if if you're interested in doing further reading on this topic. Now I. Tonight I feel particularly my own inadequacy in speaking of Christ, particularly of His anger. I feel like I can so easily go wrong. This is a a serious topic. And so I would ask as I begin with prayer that you would join me and pray for me, that the Lord would meet us tonight. So let's pray. Father, we need you. We want to have right thoughts about you and about your dear son. And so we ask that you would meet us tonight as we navigate through your word and look at these pictures of your son. Help us to draw the right conclusions. Pray that, Lord, you would paint for us the right picture of Christ. And so we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're thinking about the emotions of Christ. And uh, last week we looked at His compassion. And I today have chosen to do Jesus' anger. When we're addressing the whole person of Christ, we come to a person who is both fully man and fully God. And so as we come to Christ and we observe Him, we see in Him something of what is true, something of what it means to be truly human. But at the same time, as we look at him, we also see what it means to be God. We see something, he, he points us to what God and who God is. And so, as we look at this emotion of anger, we see both what we ought to be and we see what God truly is. So let's think about anger. Before we dive into the the Word of God, I want us to think a little bit about anger and what it is and what it is not. Anger is not fundamentally sinful. It is not essentially good or bad. Anger is rather an emotional force that can animate a person towards good or towards bad. Anger can stir a person up to courageously run to the rescue of a person being robbed and beaten. Or it can animate a person to inflict pain on another person because they did not get their way. In other words, anger can be incredibly selfish or incredibly selfless, right? So what is anger? How might we define it? Well, David Pallison wrote a book, if you've never read it, I would recommend it to you as well, called Good and Angry. And here's a helpful definition. Here's our definition. Anger is active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. Active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. In other words, anger communicates, I'm against that. I'm against that. That's not okay. That's wrong. That's what anger communicates. I care about that, and it's wrong. Anger expresses itself in action, as we all know. The emotions come out, they come out in actions. We sigh, we yell, we punch, we clam up, right? We accuse, we attack. But regardless of the way that we express anger, we're always saying the same thing. We're saying, that's wrong. I am against that. And that's what lies at the heart of anger. And because of this, anger communicates what we value. Anger declares, this matters to me. If you want to know what matters to you, just pay attention to when you get angry and you will know what deeply matters to you. Some people believe that it's wrong to think of God as being angry. God's not an angry God. God is loving. But it is precisely because God is loving that He is angry. The two go together. You cannot have love without anger. In fact, we could say God gets angry at that which destroys and ruins what He loves. He gets angry at what ruins and destroys what He loves. And so we could say, I could think we could say this accurately, that there is no more angry being in the entire universe than God. Think about that. That there is a no more angry being in all the universe than God. Why? Because there is no more loving being in all of the universe. And his anger proceeds from his love. Robert Law, I just mentioned his book, writes The anger of Jesus is the anger of love. Because his love is so vast, his anger is so terrible. That's a profound statement. Jesus' anger is terrible. Why? Because his love is so vast. So we might ask ourselves well, what does Jesus love? Because you see, his, Jesus' anger is only going to make sense to you and to me if we understand it against the background of what he loves, of what he cares about. Well, I think we can easily say that Jesus loves his Father. Would we be right about saying that? Jesus loves his Father. Jesus loves the Spirit of God. Jesus has been part of this triune being, this triune um, Godhead for all eternity, and they have loved each other for all eternity. But What else does Jesus love? Jesus loves his creation particularly human beings who were created as the apex of his creation. Why? Why does Jesus love his creation? Well, because he made it. (laughs) He created it. Colossians tells us that nothing was made apart from him, that he made it all, and he delighted in it. We read in Genesis chapter 1 that it was good, it was very good. And therefore you will find that when Jesus displays his anger, it is either because God's character is being degraded or distorted, or it is because his creation has been or is being marred and disfigured and destroyed. And that's what evokes within the heart of Christ, anger. Why? People matter to God. His creation matters to him. Picture creation as a beautiful painting. Imagine this wall here. It's this incredible painting. And then imagine me taking this bucket, this gallon bucket of black paint and just sloshing it all over the painting. And that's what our sin does. is It mars the creation. And Jesus says, I'm against that. I'm against that. That is wrong. Now there's two kinds of anger. It's important that we understand this. There is a destructive anger and there is a restorative anger. Often the anger we display is destructive anger. Our anger destroys relationships. It destroys property. It destroys people. Our anger so often doesn't build up, it tears down. Why? Because our love is directed towards the wrong object. We love ourselves rather than loving God and loving our neighbor. And so, when you're in my way, when you become an obstacle to my happiness, I say, that's wrong and I seek to destroy you. Last month a young gas station clerk in Germany was murdered because he asked a customer to wear a mask. What's going on? I love myself. I'm tell me what I can do or not do How dare you? And he murdered him. And we see here the destructive power of anger. The problem with so much of our anger is that we express it when we really shouldn't. And we fail to express it when we really should. But God's anger is a restorative anger. I want to use that term because it's, it's a righteous, restorative anger. Because Jesus' anger builds up. It protects It makes right. It gives life. The goal of restorative anger is to destroy or remove that which causes harm. And so, whenever Jesus' anger is displayed, it results in healings. It restores in storms being stilled, and demons being cast out, and people being protected and taught, and God being exalted, and even death being reversed. Why? Because Jesus' anger proceeds out of his love for God and his love for people. Now as we read the Gospels, we find that Jesus' righteous, restorative anger is expressed again and again. It's actually very frequently on the pages of the Gospels. And although there's far too many passages for us to look at, especially in depth, I want, at the risk of doing too much, I want us to see something of the scope of this emotion within Christ. Jesus repeatedly used strong denunciatory language. He called the Pharisees, you hypocrites, blind guides, Whitewashed tombs, serpents, brood of vipers. He called down woe after woe after woe upon them. You cannot read Matthew 23. And the woes He calls down on the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, and not be aware of Jesus' anger. Righteous anger. He calls the crowds faithless and perverse generation, wicked and adulterous. He even points to the Jews at one point and he says, you are of your father the devil. That's strong language. And he calls Herod that fox. You go tell that fox. Da-da-da-da-da. Strong language. Perhaps the most familiar example of Christ's anger is when he made a scourge of cords and he went into the temple and he began driving out all those who were selling in the temple area. Overturning tables. Driving the animals out. Driving the people out. Whipping. Obviously using that scourge. You see, God instituted the temple so that people could draw near to God. It was to be a house of prayer. And instead, the religious leaders were using it as a house of profit. A place of business. Selling sacrificial animals at a premium. The whole atmosphere of the temple have been transformed from a place where man could meet with God by way of a sacrifice to a place of business. Not just business, thievery. So Jesus expresses his righteous anger and with physical force drives the people and animals out. He says, I'm against that. I'm against that. Now this is usually the story we think of when we think of Jesus' anger, but tonight I want us to Think of other passages that bring out to us Jesus' righteous anger. And so I've organized this around four words, four key words that are actually used to describe Christ's anger. And the first one is this word epitimau. Epitimau, it's translated rebuke. It means to express strong disapproval of someone, to rebuke. Reprove, censure, to speak seriously to a person. Now, rebuke may be a mild form of anger, but it is still a form of anger. It's Jesus saying, I'm against that. And so, walk with me briefly. I'm going to walk through some of these passages. We're not going to turn to them, I'm going to go through them fairly rapidly. The first one is in Mark chapter 1. And there we read that Jesus rebukes a demon. And he says, be quiet. Come out of him. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm against you, demon. I'm against your destructive ways. Get out of here. And what was the result? The result was that this man was rescued from this oppressive spirit. You see, restorative anger displayed. And he was rescued and delivered. You turn to Mark chapter 4, and there you find Jesus and his disciples, and they're in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and a big storm rises up. And the disciples are afraid for their life, and they wake Jesus up. And Jesus stands up, and it says, He rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Hush, be still. You see, God created the world. Storms were not part of what He created. Storms that, storms that came against human beings, that placed them in a place of danger, that threatened them. There should never have been life-threatening storms. And Jesus, in a sense, is saying, I'm against you, storm. And what was the result? The wind dies down. The sea is stilled. And lives are spared. It's the reality. Lives were spared. Restorative anger. You look at Luke chapter 4. And there you have the story of Jesus coming to Peter's mother-in-law who was suffering from a fever. And we are told that Jesus rebuked the fever and it left her. I am against you, Fever. Get out of her. Leave her alone. And it left her. Restorative anger. Mark chapter 8. This is really, in a sense, the pivotal moment in the life of Christ, in, in, in the ministry of Christ. Peter has just declared Jesus to be the Son of God. And Jesus takes this moment to explain to his disciples that he's going to a cross that he's going to be beaten, that he's going to die, that he's going to be buried, that he's going, to be, he's going to rise again. And Peter gets angry at Jesus and takes him aside and says, Jesus, this isn't going to happen to you. We're, we're actually told that Peter rebukes Jesus. And since Peter is saying, I'm against this, Jesus. I'm against your death. I'm against the cross. This will not happen to you. And Jesus, we're told, turns around. and the Gospel, that tells us he, he's walking this way. In a sense, Peter, maybe he's got his arm around. Jesus like, hey, this ain't happening. And then Jesus turns around. He sees his disciples. And in the presence of his disciples and Peter right there, he rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. And you've got to understand, this isn't like a, get behind me, Satan. There's an intensity to this moment. Peter is intense. Jesus is even more intense. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, the things of man. I'm against you, Satan. What's going on? It seems clear that Satan was using Peter in in that very moment to tempt Jesus to forego the cross to forgo the very means by which all things might be restored. And it was a very real temptation in that moment. If it had not been a real temptation, I don't think Jesus would have reacted the way he reacted, but it was a real temptation. But he responded and he rebuked Peter. And what was the result? I want you to see this. Restorative anger. What was the result? Jesus did not Forgo the cross. He went and he worked there our salvation. Turn with me to Mark chapter ten. We're going to move on to our next word, this word indignation agonactao, which means to be aroused to anger, to be indignant. I'm working our way from maybe the milder forms to the stronger forms of anger as recorded in Scripture. I don't know if you remember the story of James and John who call on their mama to go talk to Jesus. See if you can get us the best spots in heaven. you know, The best seats. And we're told that the other the other ten disciples find out about this conversation, find out about this desire, and they become indignant. They get upset. Well, why are these other ten disciples upset? Well, probably because they think they should get the best seat. You know, how dare you, James and John? That, I should get that. You know, this indignation. Same word that's being used in our passage right here. Chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, verse 13. What do we read? And they, presumably parents, were bringing children to Jesus, to him, so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. There's our word. And he said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands upon them. See, parents are bringing children to Jesus so that he might touch them. Matthew, In Matthew's Gospel, he says that the parents are bringing the children to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray for them. But before they get to Jesus, they've got to get through the disciples. And the disciples step in and begin rebuking. There's our actual previous word, epitimowing the parents. We're against this. Leave Jesus alone. He has better things to do than to pray for your dirty, snotty, fussy kids. Right? And when Jesus saw this, sees this happening, he becomes indignant. That is, he is repulsed by their attitude. He's angry at his disciples. And so he commands, permit the children to come to me. He prohibits, don't hinder them. He declares, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And then he warns, truly I say to you, you disciples, watch out. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Jesus makes it clear here that he is against those who would purposefully stand in the way and hinder those who are most eligible for the kingdom. Those who would hinder people from coming to Christ. Why? Jesus cares about people. Jesus cares about children. And he wants to receive them and bless them. And this is exactly what he does. His restorative anger undoes the barrier and allows these children to come near that he might bless them. Isn't that beautiful? You also see here, and this is a side note, but Jesus' emotions are always under perfect control. He can move from anger, righteous anger, to, in the next moment, blessing children and praying for them. Turn with me to Mark chapter 3. and Here's our third word. This is the word orge. Mark chapter 3. The word orge refers to a state of relatively strong displeasure. It is the most common word in Greek for anger, for wrath. And here we see it used of Christ. Now the context is important here. Jesus has been repeatedly con- been confronted by the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees are seen as religious elite, the spiritual leaders in Israel. They opposed Jesus because He broke their man-made religion, their man-made traditions. And so look at chapter 2, verse 16. Here are the Pharisees. They come to Jesus. Hey, and here they have a question: Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Look at a couple verses later, verse 18, chapter 2, 18. Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples they don't fast? This this opposition, right? He's questioning. You go a little bit further down to verse 24. And you see this this next question, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Because the disciples were were picking grains of wheat and eating them. And so you almost get this impression when you turn to chapter 3, verse 1, where we read, He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered, and they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. You almost get the impression that they found this dude with his withered hand, placed him in the synagogue as a setup so that they could accuse Jesus of doing the wrong thing on the Sabbath. Now, whether it was a setup or not, they were there watching him to accuse him. And what does Jesus do? Well, he doesn't back down, he calls the man forward stand up, come near. Look at verse 3. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. Verse 4. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. In other words, Jesus appeals to them. He says, Come on, guys. What's better? To do good or to do bad? Isn't it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? But these people have no interest In wrestling through this question with Jesus, they have one aim, to accuse Jesus of wrongdoing. You see here something of Jesus' slowness to anger because he's been repeatedly questioned, maybe over a period of a few days, by the Pharisees. And yet here at this moment, verse 5, we read, after looking around at them with anger, with orge grieved at their hardness of heart. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And immediately the Pharisees went out conspiring with the Herodians against him to see how they might destroy him. Jesus' righteous anger is expressed. What causes this mixture of anger and grief from Jesus. What causes it? Well, I think here particularly it tells us their hardness of heart, their lack of compassion for their fellow man. You see, Jesus gets angry with entrenched hardness of heart. He says, I'm against you and your petty rules I'm against your petty rules that that justify your lack of compassion and love. I'm against that. But what does his anger cause him to do? It causes him to act boldly and courageously and heal that man, even though he knew what it could mean for him. Restorative anger. How are we doing? You are following? Okay, we've looked at multiple passages. But now I want us to turn to John chapter 11. And this is our fourth word that is used here. John chapter 11. This story takes place... Within the last few weeks of Jesus' life, Lazarus is a dear friend of Jesus, and he became sick and he died. And by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Jesus um, Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha, and Jesus loved. Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And when Jesus first arrives he encounters Martha and then he encounters Mary. And what's interesting is they both have the exact same statement. They both make the very same statement. They said, "Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died." They're grieving Now you have to understand that the atmosphere is emotionally charged in this story. Everyone's grieving the death of Lazarus. I want us to begin reading here in verse 33. Verse 33, this is right after his encounter with Mary. Verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her, that is Mary, weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. And there's our word. Deeply moved in spirit. And was troubled and said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus came again, again being deeply moved within. There's our word a second time. Came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. So twice we read this word, we read this, this phrase that he was deeply moved. Within himself, it is this word. I'm going to put up here "embrymaomai." The word was used in classical Greek to depict the snorting of an animal. It is applied when it when it is applied to human beings. It speaks of anger, but intense anger, outrage, infuriation. I've been a... Commentary after commentary, they all say the same thing. This word speaks of rage. You see, in the face of Lazarus' death, in the face of all the grief, Jesus reacts within Himself. An emotion is stirred up. And it is not an emotion of empathy or grief or just tears. It is more than that. It is an emotion of anger of infuriation. Now John is careful to tell us that this emotion was not fully expressed externally because both times it tells us that this emotion was occurring within himself, within his spirit. There was a restraint and yet as B.B. Warfield writes, his inwardly restrained fury produced a profound agitation of his whole being. Now what is it that evoked this intense emotion within the person of Christ. Let me say something here. The greatest intensity of anger is expressed in the face of the greatest obstacle to human flourishing. What is the greatest obstacle to human flourishing? Death. And when faced with death, this emotion rises up within Jesus Christ. See, death is not natural. Death is not what God intended. It is man's great enemy by which we are held in bondage. That's how it's described in the New Testament. Paul calls death the last enemy that will be abolished. And so here Jesus finds himself face to face with death and perhaps we could, just, we could also say face to face with him who has the power of death, the devil, and he's raging within himself. B.B. Warfield writes, Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of irrepressible anger. Another commentator writes, Christ approaches Lazarus' tomb as a champion who prepares for a conflict. And he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! Perhaps you've experienced the death of a loved one. I found out today that a friend of mine has passed away. I have a nephew who's in NICU who's battling for his life. Death is very real. Perhaps you're aware not just of the reality of physical death, but you are aware of the reality of spiritual death in a loved one. And Jesus in this moment is demonstrating His willingness and determination to destroy our greatest foe. Christ is our mighty warrior. Do you realize that tonight? Christ is our mighty warrior. He is the one who has defeated our greatest foe, our greatest enemy. The fierceness of his anger proves the greatness of his love. The fierceness of his anger proves the greatness of his love. This is restorative anger. Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? Lazarus came walking out of that grave And what does Jesus say? Unbind him. Let him go. Set him free. What a picture. What a picture of regeneration. What a picture of future glorification. Never forget this picture. Jesus standing in front of that tomb, raging, our mighty warrior rescuing us, calling us forth. Come alive! Be set free! And why is he able to do that? Why is he able to call forth Lazarus from the grave? Why is he able to call you and me out of spiritual death? Why is, why is it that one day he's going to be able to resurrect us? And give us new physical life. It's because he was going to a cross. It's because he was going to taste death for us. The book of Hebrews said that it was through his own death that he destroyed him who had the power of death. And it was through his own death that He delivered us from the bondage of sin and death. What a moment. Christ came to rescue us. So what lessons are we to draw from Jesus' anger? I'm going to quote Robert Law again here. He says, We should study Jesus' anger that in the first place we may never draw it down upon ourselves. Whoa. And then that we may sympathize with it and possess it. We need to be aware of Jesus' anger that we might not draw it down upon ourselves. So that's our first point. Let us be careful not to draw down God's anger upon ourselves. I want to say this. Jesus did not get angry over being personally attacked by people, being sinned against. That is, his anger did not emanate from wounded pride. Do you agree with that? It wasn't personal revenge. It wasn't you hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you back. Jesus also, he didn't get angry at things that didn't matter. He didn't get angry at clumsiness. You tripped again, clumsy person. He didn't get angry at incompetence. And here's something else. Jesus never got angry with repentant sinners. Jesus never gets angry with men and women who recognize their sin and brokenness. He never responds in anger with people who are aware of their need. I wonder if you're aware of that need tonight. Aware of your brokenness, your sin, your need. Jesus isn't angry at you, if you're aware of it. But what does Jesus get angry at? What does Jesus oppose? What is he against? He's against pride. He's against hypocrisy. He's against Self righteousness. Well, this is what we're told in the Word of God, right? God resists the proud, but He gives what? Grace to the humble. What else is Jesus against? Well, Jesus was against those who actively opposed His mission. Jesus was against those who would use their position of power in order to take advantage of people. He was against oppression. Jesus was against those who hinder people from having access to God. He's against that. If you're an obstacle to another person coming to know God, He's against you. Jesus is against those who mischaracterize God to others. Jesus is against that attitude of fallen human nature that elevates self-preservation above the will of God. That's why he rebuked Peter, right? Jesus is against all that oppresses people and seeks to harm and destroy them. Jesus is against a curse. Jesus is against death. You know, but before the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus is not angry at Mary and Martha. And he's not angry at Lazarus. He's angry at death. And so I would warn you tonight, beware of pride. Beware of a hard heart towards God and people. A hard heart. Beware of an attitude of antagonism towards God and His ways. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Acknowledge your brokenness and your need. Confess your sins. For there, there He gives grace. There He forgives. There he restores. So one, let us be careful not to draw down God's anger upon ourselves. But two, let us only be angry at that which makes God angry. Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and do not sin. It's quite startling, isn't it? You would expect him to say, don't be angry. But he says, he actually commands it. It's imperative. Be angry and do not sin. This is very difficult to do. In fact, it's impossible to do apart from being filled with the Spirit of Christ. What does it look like to be angry and not sin? Well, look at Christ. Look at the way he displayed anger. Look at the circumstances in which he displayed anger. Study his life and you will discover a different kind of anger, a righteous, restorative anger. Well, you might ask, well, how can I tell what kind of anger I'm feeling and and displaying How is it that we can discern between destructive anger and restorative anger? How can we tell the difference? And I would encourage you, whenever you get angry, start asking yourself this question. What do I love so much that I'm now responding in anger? What do I care about so much that it's drawing forth from me anger, this emotion. Is it love of self? Is it my own needs and my own wants? Then let us beware of the destructive power of anger. Is it love of God? Love for fellow human beings? then there is the possibility that maybe we're displaying restorative anger. I state it cautiously because of the deceitfulness of our own hearts. Perhaps tonight, God has made you aware of the greatness of His loving heart. Paradoxical. Paradoxically, we can see the greatness of God's loving heart through his anger. Perhaps you're aware, you become aware of Christ as your conqueror, your mighty warrior, who rescues you from eternal death. Praise him for that. Give thanks to God for his righteous, restorative anger that spurred him on in the conflict against sin, Satan, and death. Praise him for it. Perhaps tonight the Spirit of God has convicted you of words, actions, attitudes which left unchecked will draw down God's wrath upon your life. Repent. Confess your sins turn away from that which God is against. Perhaps tonight you're just conscious of your need to grow in this area of anger. To grow in understanding and practicing even at times righteous, restorative anger. And I would encourage you to look upon Christ as the perfect example. And I would encourage you as well To first align your love with God's love. Focus on loving God and loving neighbor so that you might also be aligned with God's anger. See, love is primary, love is primary. Anger is at times love's expression, but love is primary. Let's pray, Father. We thank you for our time tonight. Help us to understand. deepen our love for you and our love for others. That we might display proper, righteous, restorative anger and not sin. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.